You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Tim Rice, and this is episode 61 of my podcast, Get Onto My Cloud. Before I wade into the gripping topic featured in this episode of Get Onto My Cloud, episode 61, I think I should repeat a sentence from episode 60, which was the story of the Society of Distinguished Songwriters, or SODs. I listed, I thought, a complete list of my fellow composers and lyricists whose company and artistry I have enjoyed so much for nearly 50 years. The sentence I must repeat is, quote, I'm terrified of missing any sod out, as I love them all equally, but my lawyers are primed to field any complaints. Unquote. Well, before the lawyers leap into action, I must apologize profusely for not including Guy Fletcher, the late Doug Flett, Eddie Sego, and Steve Booker in the list of runners and riders. They've been far too polite to complain, or more likely never listen to my podcasts, but others have politely and rightly hauled me over the coals on their behalf. Mike Batt also had a go at me for bad grammar, but I can live with that. I just hope a list of sods I forgot to mention won't become a regular feature of future podcasts. And now, get on to my cloud 61 proper. The extraordinary success of the Jesus Christ Superstar album in America in 1971 meant that the first time Andrew Lloyd Webber and I had a show presented professionally anywhere in the world was on Broadway in October of that year, when Robert Stigwood's production of Tom O'Horgan's staging of the work opened at the Mark Hellinger Theatre. Andrew and I had been hailed as marketing geniuses for issuing an album of a new show's score before the actual show, which I'm afraid we were not. Not marketing geniuses, that is. We'd only done this because no theatrical producer had shown any interest in the work. When it became a number one album, the best-selling album in America that year, quite a few theatrical producers got in touch. Robert Stigwood beat off rival opposition, 
and David Land, our manager, did the deals to give the Stigwood organization the rights to produce the show worldwide. Although the album had done pretty well in many other countries besides America, it hadn't made a great impact in the UK, so it made total sense to launch the next phase of the rock opera's life on Broadway, rather than in our home patch of London's West End. However, the Broadway show, which I described in some detail in Get Onto My Cloud episode 11, was a bit of a curate's egg and never came near matching the phenomenal impact of the Superstar album, neither critically nor commercially. Nonetheless, by early 1972, even in those pre-internet, pre-mobile phone days, interest in Superstar had trickled back across the Atlantic, and it seemed that a West End staging would be a good bet. A reasonable one, anyway. But not Tom O'Horgan's version. In the meantime, other stage versions of Superstar were emerging around the world. Rather than hold them back in order to let London have the first non-American crack at the show, we were quite happy to let them rip as, A, this prevented pirate versions, the theatrical equivalent of bootleg albums, surfacing all over the shop, and B, someone might come up with a version that would be right for London. For some unknown reason, the first European version to emerge was in Denmark. The show was in Danish, so I was not sure whether my take on the immortal story was fully appreciated or not, but it was well staged, energetically performed, and very successful. The highlight of my trip to Copenhagen to see the show, however, was finding myself sitting next to John Fogarty, legendary leader of Credence Clearwater Revival, on the plane out. I recognised him immediately, but could not understand what he was doing on a flight from London to Copenhagen. It was clearly not a business trip, or a concert trip, as there was no one else on the Credence payroll on the flight. Once I found the nerve to introduce myself and confirm that it really was him, we had several turbulence-calming glasses together, during which I asked him, rather rudely really, whether he ever resented criticism that Credence were a three-chord group. Three-chord group, replied John, we're a two-chord group. Indeed, many of his greatest songs, such as Green River and Bad Moon Rising, were simplicity itself, but therein lay their greatness.
Bad Moon Rising by Credence Clearwater Revival. The group, led and masterminded by John Fogarty, shot to worldwide popularity shortly before the release of the Jesus Christ Superstar album and had become one of my favourite acts. I paid an obscure tribute to Fogarty and Superstar. Caiaphas, the high priest at one point, sings not I see a bad moon rising, but I see bad things arising. Good Caiaphas, the council waits for you. The Pharisees and priests are here for you. Ah, gentlemen, you know why we are here. We've not much time and quite a problem here. Listen to that howling mob of blockheads in the street. A trick or two with lepers and the whole town's on its feet. For him, Jesus is cool. We dare not leave him to his own devices. His half-witted fans will get out of control. But how can we stop him? His glamour increases by leaps every minute. He's top of the pole. I see bad things arising. The crowd crowning king, which the Romans would ban. I see blood and destruction, our elimination. Because of one man, blood and destruction. Because of one man, because, because, because of one man, our elimination. Because of one man, because, because, because of one, cause of one, cause of one man. What then to do about this Jesus mania? How do we deal with the carpenter king? Where do we start with a man who is bigger than John was when John did his? Perception. The stakes we are gambling are frighteningly high. We must crush him completely. So like John before him, this Jesus must die for the sake of the nation. This Jesus must die, must die, must die. This Jesus must die. So like John before him, this Jesus must die, must die, must die. This Jesus must, Jesus must, Jesus must die. 
The great blues man Victor Brox as Caiaphas, with Brian Keith as Annas, and I think I had a line in there somewhere with This Jesus Must Die, from the original 1970 recording before any stage show was contemplated, let alone planned. Following Copenhagen, in the first half of 1972, I went to openings of Superstar in Paris, in Munster in Germany, in Stockholm, and in Sydney. Incidentally, in Stockholm, the cast included Agneta Folkskog. Both future ABBA stars, Agneta and Frida, recorded Swedish-language versions of songs from the score. Because of the general lack of confidence in the O'Horgan version, all of these productions were brand new and none bore any resemblance to the Broadway show. It was extremely useful for us to see other ways it could be done before we set up in the West End. Robert, moving at breakneck speed, determined to open the West End show at the Palace Theatre in August. Having seen five different treatments of Superstar in a little over six months, it was no surprise to me that Jim Sharman, the director in Sydney, got the vote to recreate his Aussie success in London. Except that he didn't actually recreate it, but improved upon it. Robert Stigwood's amazing energy continued in full flow as he set to work in the spring of 1972 to bring our hit show home. The American, and indeed near-global success of Superstar, had at last penetrated British indifference to their two young countrymen's theatrical achievements, and we were not short of advanced publicity or bookings. The album even lurched into the UK charts, selling consistently rather than sensationally. Jim Sharman took quiet and measured control, and casting proceeded speedily. The part of Jesus went to Paul Nicholas, then a young singer-actor who'd made an impact in Robert's London production of Hair. The less established Stephen Tate won the part of Judas, and the role of Mary eventually settled upon Dana Gillespie, after the original lady selected proved unsuitable, not untalented, but not right, and Dana was promoted from the chorus at the 11th hour during previews. A zany American based in London named Paul Jabara, later to win an Oscar for his composition Last Dance, sung by Donna Summer in the 1978 film Thank God It's Friday, Paul was signed as Herod and John Parker as Pilot. Among total unknowns in the chorus was a young actress named Elaine Page. The entire cast proved highly satisfactory and morale was high. I do recall, however, a brief panic over costumes, which were changed radically from semi-caveman to timeless desert chic about two nights before opening, but all went pretty smoothly during previews. The only other hiccup was when Andrew and I had a pre-opening panic and drove to Robert's mansion in Stanmore, under an hour from London, to beg Robert to cancel or at least postpone the opening night. Andrew even convinced me that we were heading for irretrievable disaster if we didn't send Jim and his cast packing the next morning. Robert dealt with our ludicrous quest with tact, calm, and a lot of champagne. One of the features of the London show was that the cast were such nice people, or stoned at least. Paul Nicholas is one of the most unpretentious and amusing characters in British entertainment, and I've never been surprised by his subsequent substantial success, doing well in almost every field of entertainment, as a pop singer, musical actor, TV star, and theatrical producer even a tightrope walker in Barnum. Paul sang Jesus like a bell, fortunately keeping his wonderfully filthy laugh for off-stage activities, sometimes difficult when one heard of the tricks played on stage during the show. Paul shuddered every time he opened a chalice during the Last Supper 
knowing that some inappropriate memento of backstage life would inevitably have been placed therein. Dana Gillespie, who'd achieved a certain notoriety via her appearance in Bob Dylan's documentary of his 1965 tour of Britain, and, it must be said, via her voluptuous beauty, was wonderfully earthy as Mary and gave the song an edge that even approached Yvonne Elliman's interpretation. She is, of course, now one of Britain's most respected ever female blues singers and has recorded well over 60 albums. Stephen Tate was strong on anguish and in voice, a fine, tormented contrast to Paul's ethereal Jesus. Paul Jabara delivered Herod with extraordinary camp panache, white suit and tails, glitz and degeneracy. John Parker expertly conveyed Pilate's anguish and confusion. There were no weak links, even down to the humblest member of the supporting cast. I wish I could state that Elaine stood out, but she was merely one of many great movers and singers. No one watching the original London show would have named her then as the one to become the biggest star of all, but only because they all seemed capable of almost anything. Jim's show was very different from his Australian production, which in turn had been a drastic contrast to Broadway. The set was stark and bare. The central playing area, a large box with a slightly raked lit floor surrounded by three walls, wide and high, over which members of the chorus clambered throughout the evening. A Piccadilly Circus-type display of lights flashed up occasional words of information such as Jerusalem, Sunday. The simplicity of the basic staging generously allowed the words and music to become the main driving force of the story. But there were many moments of great visual impact, primarily through the movements of the swirling chorus, with lights, dry ice, colourful banners and artful choreography by Rufus Collins. The technology, in particular the merging of the rock section and orchestra, had advanced hugely in the ten months since Broadway. There was also a good deal of humour, which always helps. The priests and Herod were both jokey and sinister. The crucifixion was spectacular but restrained, as the cross rose from the depths during the final moments of the show. It was particularly restrained on the opening night, when a safety catch clicked into action for over a minute, trapping Paul on the cross in the basement. This delay seemed like an hour to conductor, orchestra and cast, all desperately holding on to one note of anguish, which anguish they did not have to act to convey. Two panic-stricken authors, standing at the back of the stalls, wondered whether they should rush out onto stage to apologise or rush out of the Palace Theatre and their careers in musicals altogether. But eventually, the contraption lurched into action, by which time most of the theatre had been filled with smoke that had been pumped up for much longer than intended. If anything, the delay added to the dramatic tension of the climax of the show. By the time Superstar opened in London on the 9th of August 1972, it was established in Britain as a cultural phenomenon, albeit a more middle-of-the-road one that it had been in the countries that had gone for it in a big way from record one. Robert's opening night party at his home in Stanmore was a tremendous bash, complete with a couple of fights and mass skinny-dipping. It was clear that the show was going to be a massive hit, and by and large, the reviews were not too bad at all. However, Superstar never won any significant awards during its initial spell of glory in the early 70s. It missed out on Grammys, Tonys, and British theatrical prizes such as the Evening Standard Awards. We were briefly miffed by this, but after David Land told us he could probably get the shows that had defeated us to give us their trophies if we gave them our box office take, 
it didn't seem to matter so much. Applause was the British Evening Standard Best Musical. Two Gentlemen of Verona won the Broadway Tony for Best Musical, in which category Superstar was not even nominated. Carol King's Tapestry beat us for Grammy Album of the Year, which was totally understandable. My attitude to awards ever since may well have been fueled by these early rejections. I'm unable to take any of them very seriously, although, by and large, I'd rather win than lose. The ones I have won over the years seem more often than not to have been for the wrong things or for just turning up, but it's easy to say that when you've had more than your fair share of the trips to the winner's circle. To close, here from the original London cast recording are Dana Gillespie and Richard Barnes as Peter, with a song that was not on the original hit album, but written for Broadway, which gave Mary Magdalene something worthwhile to sing in the second act. It worked well on Broadway, and it worked well in London, so it's been kept in all subsequent versions. And the song is, Could We Start Again, Please?
was episode 61 of my podcast, Get Onto My Cloud, written and presented by me, Tim Rice, and produced with casual awareness by Peter Holtz. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.